Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. On today's episode, we're very fortunate to be joined by one of my favorite people in health administration, Brittany McElroy. Academically, Brittany received a Bachelor's of Science in Business Administration from the University of Florida and a Master's of Health Administration from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Brittany currently serves as the Operations Administrator of the Hematology and Oncology Practice at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. In addition, Brittany is also the Site Director of the Administrative Fellowship Program at Mayo Clinic, Arizona, and a Site Liaison for Mayo Clinic's Response to Racism. Outside of the workplace, Brittany sits on the Leadership Committee for the Coalition of Blacks Against Cancer and is also Six Sigma Black Belt Certified. On today's episode, she joins Juan and I to discuss the intricacies of patient access and also how aspiring administrative fellows can select the organization that is right for them and maximize their time as a fellow. We really hope you found this episode informative and valuable. And as always, thank you for listening. And with that, we'll begin the episode. Brittany, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I'm obviously very excited to have you on, and I can't wait to hear all of the valuable insights that you have to share for all of our listeners. Awesome. Thank you so much for the invite. I'm honored just to be here to talk about this topic. You know, it's near and dear to me. Um, Patient access, in my opinion, is imperative to everything that we do in the healthcare environment. I agree. That's definitely something that I start to realize this summer. So as you mentioned, our first question is about patient access. And it's a very broad topic that's not usually fully understood So can you tell our listeners more about kind of the intricacies behind patient access and also why patient access is so crucial to clinical operations and patient experience? Absolutely. So as I was going through my education, I think that the one big thing that was missed was the fact that all of these great elements that we have to offer are inaccessible if we don't have access. And when I say elements, I don't just mean brick and mortar care. I mean, virtual care. I mean, any type of care access is imperative to think about and to really be focused on. So in my opinion, the intricacies come because sometimes we oversimplify. In my education, I learned supply and demand, right? And there were certain variables that impacted both elements. And subsequently, that's what you looked at. But in the access realm, I think it's much broader and deeper than that. For example, you do look at clinical capacity, you do look at maybe insurers, um, payers, you might look at location of your facility, or just demand for your care. But beyond that, you have to go a lot deeper. And sometimes even things like social determinants of health influence access. Sometimes it's about, you know, the patient's language. Sometimes it's about how the patient interfaces with a health institution, whether that be on a virtual platform or in a brick and mortar facility. So I think the important thing to appreciate is the fact that when it comes to healthcare access, there are so many parameters, so many elements to think about that it becomes a very nuanced topic. And we can debate all day probably on one little element of it, right? People talk about social determinants of health all the time, but I don't think they always bridge how that influence and impacts their access to care. So I think when we oversimplify access, that then takes away from us appreciation appreciating the nuance of access to healthcare. That's a really strong point, Brittany, especially around the oversimplification of access. It seems like 
even from my previous understanding, you touched on an interesting point, which is how something like a social determinant of health, where the connection is very clear to a health outcome, can also influence how a patient accesses healthcare and ultimately serves as kind of the lifeblood into the healthcare continuum as we know it. Absolutely. And you know, one of the interesting things that I've been digging into lately is we talk about representation of just, for example, Black individuals in terms of research, right, in healthcare. And what I think creates a level of nuance is the history of Black individuals participating in research and healthcare, right? And so when we're thinking through access, I don't think people go back, right, in, in the encyclopedia and say, okay, tell us a little bit more about these experiences of Black people to then understand how we landed where we are in 2022. And so to the point of the question that you asked me, it's so nuanced. And sometimes it takes us unpacking those nuances to then arrive at a place where now you can optimize access to care um, or you can optimize representation of clinical trials to make sure that whatever you produce is applicable to a lot of variety of individuals. Um, so there's a lot to it. And I, I'm, I'm really excited that people are taking the time to dig deeper than just what presents in terms of supply and demand, if you would. Uh, you definitely held a lot of uh, key points on that. Um, so kind of going off that, I think many people view access from a very unilateral perspective of transportation or proximity, but it's much more comprehensive than that. And so, you know, Arizona is a very um, demographically diverse kind of population. So have you all been able to overcome the barriers of language or technology and um, extending care to Spanish speaking or indigenous populations? Sure. Your question was very definitive and have we been able to overcome it? And I'll be honest and say that this is a journey, not a destination, right? Okay. Um, so we're definitely working at it, but I, I will not be so um, proud to say that we've overcome it. And I, some of the tactics that we're using to overcome it are elements of community engagement. For example, for many years now, we've been sending providers out to those spaces versus asking the patients to come here. What does that do? That plants the seed of relationship. So although that provider might not look like that patient, that patient now comes to trust that provider. And when that provider says, you know what, your care needs are so acute that we need you to come to Mayo Clinic, they then feel like the door has been opened on their behalf. So our outreach really has opened the door for a lot of individuals in different spaces um, within the Arizona community. Another aspect of it is something that we've probably pulled out of the history books, and that is um, navigators, lay navigators. So many, many years ago, this was an effort that was pushed very broadly in healthcare, where you would have a person from that community be a part of the organization in which you were trying to um, pull forward care on behalf of a population, and they would be that bridge, if you would. Well, we divested out of that strategy for many years but we're bringing that back. So in a lot of spaces within our practice, you'll see what we call lay navigators, individuals who are part of the population or the community that we're trying to care for, and they are now employed by our institution and subsequently that bridge. Now, the thing I love about the way it exists in today's world is the fact that they're educating us. So before, maybe we just told them to do a job, right? You give them a job description, tell them to do a job, and they do the job to the best of their ability. 
community. But now I think we're taking the learnings from those individuals and saying, how can we modify? How can we reposition ourselves to be able to open the door to many versus just, you know, the ones they're able, the one that lay navigator is able to reach. So I think it's a beautiful thing when an institution puts themselves in the seat of a learner and tries to really educate themselves as to how to overcome those barriers on behalf of of a broader population. So a lot more is happening, but I think those efforts are, in my opinion, helping us to navigate the journey of providing care to broader populations. I absolutely agree. And I, I really like your transparency and your response, especially your point of providers building relationships with patients inside the community. I think that really is a, a testament to the quality and value of cultural competent uh, training. And so, you know, you don't actually have to come from the same background or ethnicity to actually still be able to relate to patients. And so I definitely, uh, I like that point a lot that you touched on that. Excellent. Yes. You know, what's interesting, a lot of people assume that because maybe two people share a race that they have a commonality. I like to disrupt that and say you could probably find commonality with individuals who are of a different race if you work at it, right? If you have a conversation, if you try to find a point of connection. And so that's essentially to your point what our providers are doing, right? They're going out into those environments. And that that place of commonality is that patient might present with something where that provider is the expert. And they're able to educate and connect in an environment that feels more comfortable for that patient. So to your point, I I think we have to disrupt the idea that the only point of connection that a patient is looking for is race. Absolutely not. They're looking for someone who cares about them. They're looking for someone who's willing to take the extra step to provide them care in a way that meets their needs. Brittany, one of your many areas of expertise is centered around operational excellence. And as you and I both know, the Office of Access Management at Mayo Clinic Arizona is very intricate and very complex. And so with that in mind, how did you go about sustaining a culture of operational excellence in the Office of Access Management when there are so many variables and different factors at play that could cause variation in outcomes or desired results? This is imperative to me. If you're going to do something, do it to the best of your ability. That is absolutely important. And so the very simple way that I'm going to share it with you is through continuous improvement. It is, in my opinion, the only way that you're capable of really looking at something and making sure that it has been optimized. And going beyond the idea of continuous improvement, which is something that not only do I teach as an instructor of Greenbelt, but also is something I've tried to refine in myself in terms of achieving my Black Belt, Um, in Lean Six Sigma, but it's something that I fully appreciate that you don't have to have any certification. You don't have to have any special title to push forward continuous improvement. And in most instances, I go to the people who are doing the job, and that's exactly what Lean Six Sigma teaches you, right? Go to the people who are doing the work in order to identify opportunities for improvement and also to actually improve. So that's That's my simple method, continuous improvement, trying to always look and say, what is it that we're doing? How can we do it better? And if we don't have the best ideas, how can we just take a step forward and keep trying to put one foot in front of the other? I really like that answer, Brittany, because as we had just discussed, your processes in OAM were very complex, but 
in terms of a resolution and kind of sustaining that culture of operational excellence, it comes down to something really simple and that's just continuously seeking to improve. And because of that, it's something that you can take and apply practice to practice or institution to institution, as long as you have continuous improvement as your guiding light and kind of your North star from a management perspective. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, one of the challenges that leaders have in this space is they forget to be close to the people who are doing the work. Uh, Technically, I'm a couple layers removed. Their team leads, their supervisors, their managers, and then here I am, right? And I could stay in my office and enjoy the luxury of sitting in front of a computer all day, I suppose. But truthfully, if we want our place to achieve excellence as is defined in our values, I think I have to get out of this space, go to the front of the building and ask the individuals who are doing the work, how are we doing? What are you hearing from patients? You being the person doing the work every day, what can we do better? And so I I really try to take that approach in every position, regardless of what the task is, involve the people who are doing it. I think that really is, a, again, a testament to your, your managerial style as well as just your leadership. So I really like that. Um, so kind of follow up off of uh, the kind of theme of access. You all rolled out your advanced care at home program in Arizona late last year. How do you foresee the utilization of advanced care at home kind of enhancing the access to Mayo Clinic level care to residents all across Arizona? Absolutely. So this is one I'm super excited about because one of the greater barriers to access is the issue of brick and mortar space. So you could probably ask 10 people within our environment, what's your biggest challenge to expanding your services? And they'd say, we don't have any space. Well, advanced care at home really takes that conversation to a different level. If we are able to identify needs and subsequently provide higher level, more acute tertiary care in an individual's home, you then eliminate the barrier of brick and mortar facility, which um, is hard to express in words how excited I am about that because of a couple of factors that also influence access. Cost. These brick and mortar facilities are exceptionally expensive to maintain. And so I'm hoping probably not in its infancy, but hopefully as it matures, some of those cost savings that we might experience for not having to build another hospital will then be translated to the patient and they will experience um, less expensive care. Another one is timely care, right? So when you're waiting on a bed to free up in an inpatient facility, that's time wasted. Fortunately, if we come to your home, depending on your living situation, we could probably do that in less time than it it would take for us to wait for there to be time on the schedule for us to free up beds in our inpatient facilities for you to recover maybe from a surgery or something to that perspective. So those two items that absolutely impact access, which are cost and timeliness of care, I think will significantly be impacted if we can mature advanced care at home. Now, I think there is a caveat to it, right? There are some very um, positive things about being in an environment that's more controlled, like our facility. We can control how we clean it. We can control sterilization of it. We can control what technology exists. 
I could list a lot of other things. However, I don't think that those things that are were once in our control are insurmountable in the patient's environment. And so as we become better at what we're doing, I think we'll find that some of those things that are a little bit challenging for us in its infancy become easier in the maturity of advanced care at home. So I'm stoked about it. I, I think it's an exceptional opportunity to expand access to care. Absolutely. And again, I think you hit on two kind of hot topics right now, which are cost and time of care. So, you know, when the care is actually provided, so I think you were right on the mark with that. And just in general, I think one of the, the biggest solutions to access is the decentralization of healthcare. So creating more access points than just that traditional brick and mortar uh, hospital for people to, to patients that have access to. So I think, again, you, you were right on the mark with that. Um, I kind of want to transition a little bit and kind of talk a little bit about um, COVID for a second. So I know that a uh, significant implication of the pandemic was the reduction of in-person care that was being delivered across any hospital system. So with high risk or highly sensitive populations such as cancer, for example, have you all been able to restore the trust of delivering in-person care and have you all experienced any barriers in that process? So maybe, maybe I'll, I will say this, and I will say that we were all presented with something a lot of us had never seen in our entire careers, right? I, I still call myself a young careerist, although I'm heading into my 10th year, right? But I still feel very young at heart. Never seen a pandemic. Ebola was nothing compared to COVID-19, right? And that, to my knowledge, was the first kind of outbreak that I had seen. Um, as a healthcare administrator. And, but what I also believe is that trust is not something that sprouts up in the middle of a pandemic. Trust is something that you leverage in a pandemic, right? So we weren't trying right. to restore care. We were trying to leverage the trust. I mean, we weren't trying to restore trust. We were trying to leverage the trust that we had already built, right, with the populations we serve. And so be it that I believe a lot of individuals trust Mayo Clinic to not only guide their care, but to be a good partner in their care, they look to us to ensure that if they did have to receive care, we were going to try to do everything within our power to make sure that was safe. And we really, it was changing day to day at one point, as we all know, CDC's guidelines were just here, there and everywhere at some point. Right. Um, right. But what we tried to do was put in that level of screening right before you get to actually right at your homes, right? To tell patients, if you don't feel well, if you feel sick, if there's anything that should make you think you have um, COVID, please don't come to our facility, call us. We'll talk to you about it first, right? So that's that first level of screening at their homes. And then I think the second layer that we put in place was the door screenings. So you told us you were okay, you said all was well, but we try to screen you before you come into our facilities. We decrease the amount of space in our waiting rooms available to patients. We significantly decrease our patients to try to make sure that everybody had enough room within our spaces. We asked individuals to wear masks, a lot of at some points during this process, we were also wearing eye protection as well. So we were just really trying to be as agile as the situation called for. And I think patients trusted that patients trusted that in 
the beginning, we didn't know how COVID was transmitted from individual to individual, but we were doing everything within our power to make sure that our patients were safe in responding to every new development that there was um, available to us to prevent the spread of COVID-19. And if I may just say one other thing, I think COVID really offered us an opportunity to um, ensure that we were seen as a community partner. So our ability to provide COVID testing within communities that we pr traditionally hadn't been out to, um, like Central Phoenix area, I think really told people, you know what, not only is Mayo Clinic a trusted facility that I can go to, but it's a trusted facility within our community that will come out and help when there is a need. So I also think we were able to leverage our trust in that way as well during the pandemic. I think, again, those are great sentiments. I agree with many things that you said. I think, you know, the role that a hospital plays in a community is very, very important. And to be at Mayo Clinic, which is such a premier institution, your brand of trust is imperative. And as you said, you know, you build trust from moments like the pandemic, not during. So, um, again, I, I think that's a great testament to the work that you all are doing. Absolutely. And I, I'll tell you another thing that people contest a lot. So I'm not here to make a political stance. I only say it in the realm <laughs> of trust, right? I think another effort that we are doing to make sure that we provide safe care to our patients is encouraging people to get vaccinated. Um, we know that that is a way that we can decrease the transmission of COVID-19. And so we're trying to you know, stand on that platform and say, we believe in this. And this is a way that we can provide safe care and ensure our individuals who receive care are safe within the community. So things like that, you don't think about it as building trust, but I, I really, in my opinion, think that it does. Absolutely. Um, so I kind of wanted to piggyback off that question uh, just a tad bit. I know currently, you know, the government is working on uh, potentially extending funding for vaccinations uh, as, as well as vaccination efforts. And so I wanted to ask, from, I guess, from an institutional perspective, have you all thought of any potential solutions to either, uh, I guess, incur the cost of uninsured patients trying to get vaccinated or how do you all uh, plan to mitigate that? Huh. That's a good question. So I don't think we've thought of a different strategy to do that. Um, for our, in Arizona, for the lifespan of our vaccination efforts, we've been in very close contact with our governmental agencies in the state. Um, and right. in Arizona, our allocation of vaccines were allocated to us and they really dictated the guidelines on which we had to abide by in order to be able to um, provide vaccinations. So that's really the route we've been going. I have not heard of conversations about trying to influence different pathways for covering that, um, but likely it's happening just beyond me. Brittany, and sticking with the theme of COVID, um, Mayo Clinic Arizona is obviously a destination medical center. And with the travel restrictions that were put into place because of the pandemic that could obviously complicate day-to-day -day operations, can you touch more on how you went about redeploying a hospital census in the height of the pandemic to ensure that there was adequate capacity for more local patients? Sure. So we did quite a few things. One of the big things I think we did was we tried to ensure that um, patients who had elective surgeries were paused while patients who had urgent emergent needs were able to leverage their surgical um have their surgeries and then, you know, 
have respite within our inpatient setting as needed. So we really paused anything that was perceived as elective or something that could wait. That really helped us secure beds within our inpatient facility to meet needs of patients who might present unexpectedly. Another thing that we did that I thought, oh my goodness, I hope we don't have to do this through the summer, was we had to bring forward a tent in front of our ED to really triage patients. And so that's a layer in front of our traditional triaging activities where we said, okay, let us try to get you to the best place for care without bringing you into our um, hospital facility so that then we can, maybe we can get you an outpatient visit. Maybe we can tell you, you might be good to wait until the next time an outpatient visit is available. And really having that contact with patients, but be before they come into our emergency room, I think was helpful um, just to make sure that no one presented into that space where there were at many times a high population of people that were COVID positive. So the other thing that we did is we redeployed physicians and staff to our inpatient environments to help with potentially the overflow of patients that were um, that COVID-19 caused. And I think that was one of the significant efforts that we made to ensure that their needs could be met. Unfortunately, there were times where we couldn't put every patient in a bed, a times where, you know, there were pa more patients than there were rooms that we had to offer. But the increase in staffing really helped us respond to those needs. Sorry, I just want to mention one more, um, which I have to credit our senior leadership with in our facility. We in Mayo Clinic Arizona had a round table with other facilities in Arizona, and they were really able to have a triage system where if one facility was on overflow, they could call out to other facilities and try to get patients to a place where there was capacity for them to go. And when you have that type of synergy within the healthcare system, this is beyond, you know, people people you have agreements with, et cetera, you really are able to meet the needs of patients um, because patients were presenting from every direction. And so I really think having that synergy amongst the facilities within Arizona was paramount to our ability to care for patients and, you know, secure capacity for those patients who really needed us at the right time. What you had described was a really big, both clinical and operational lift, but one reoccurring theme that I had heard from what you had mentioned is the needs of the patient. And being that Mayo Clinic is such a values-driven organization and the primary value is the needs of the patient come first, that was a very interesting synopsis that you gave to kind of show how Mayo Clinic was living its values and putting its values into action when patients needed the most. Absolutely. And you know, at times like that, it challenges your values. So we talked a few few questions back about excellence. Well, for Mayo Clinic, excellence is to never have a patient in a hallway, right? Excellence is you invite that patient into your facility and give them that warm white glove treatment that you've always given them. But to your point, the items and the tactics that I described were very different than our prior perception of what excellence meant rendered. But what I will say is I think patients digested it well because they understood that these efforts were in place and they were the best we could do with the situation that we were presented. And so it was excellence with a different look than it normally had been for us um, at a time where I think everyone was rallying to ensure we were able to fulfill our mission of meeting the needs of patients.
That was also a great point on kind of the non-solidified definition of excellence is very much circumstantial. Next, we want to transition a little bit into career development. You've obviously helped me a lot in this regard, Brittany. So to start, um, during your time at Mayo Clinic, you've had the opportunity to be the operations administrator over both the Office of Access Management and the hematology and oncology practice. And can you speak about how having the opportunity to rotate departmentally as an OA has benefited you from a development standpoint and also helped you become a better administrator? Absolutely. So thank you, one, for that kind sentiment. Um, I thoroughly enjoy our your time here as an intern, Jefferson. But one of the things that I will say about Mayo Clinic model of rotational leadership is the fact that it makes you a very rich leader. And by rich, I mean, in every rotation, you pick up a book of knowledge that you traditionally wouldn't have. When you stay in one space for a really long time, I think a lot of things happen. One is you start to disregard other elements beyond your scope of leadership. And so unless you're repositioned, normally you get really deep into one space and you don't have a lot of awareness of the other elements that maybe influence or impact the practice in which you support. So for that purpose, I think our rotational leadership model is really healthy in that it forces you to learn a lot of different spaces and appreciate the um, integration of those elements in order to really make things work within a healthcare environment. The second thing I think that it brings forward and it calls for is the fact that you can really have 10 careers within Mayo Clinic. And most of us are super ambitious. I always say we were a lot of really smart people brought together. So it recalibrates all of the intelligence, right? You're, you're always humbled when you walk in the room because you know it's non-people in the room who are much smarter than you, right? So be it that that's the case, I think we dig deep. So I'm, as you mentioned, I transitioned from access management to the division of hematology and medical oncology. And because of that transition, I know I'm called upon to really learn my new area. I shadow physicians, I'm learning the language, I'm attending conferences, I'm connecting with the staff. I think my knowledge in the, the what the institution does is it calls for, for us to really learn the spaces in which we're responsible to cover. Now that timeline might be short. Um, so it's not like you get a year to learn and then you're asked to do the work. But nonetheless, I think at an institution like Mayo Clinic, excellence, as we've talked about quite a bit through this experience, is still um, one of the, the values that we appreciate even in a rotational model. And then the last thing that I'll say about, you know, transitioning between spaces is I think it really offers you an opportunity to impact different elements of patients' life cycle of care. So in access management, as we talked about, I was always say I was responsible for the individuals who open the door for patients, right? They might schedule the patients for appointments. They literally might be the ones who open the doors for patients. They cater, they... Um, take them to their exam rooms, get them prepared for their appointment with the physician. 
Well, in hematology, I'm now concerned with the element of the actual evaluation, the actual consult of the patient, and the elements that go into that. And so appreciating how all of these elements fit together, I think we're able to make a greater impact on patients. Um, because now I, I know if I'm experiencing a problem in my exam room, it might be because of something that happened upstream, or it might be something because of something that needs to happen next that we aren't provoking during that examination. So it really does kind of help me put the pieces together and become a more impactful leader, in my opinion. Your response had two components that really stood out to me. The first is from an administrative standpoint and career development standpoint, never letting or putting any type of limit on the scope of your responsibilities, because that's ultimately what's going to contribute to you becoming, as we've talked about a lot over the summer, a system level thinker and having that 30,000 foot perspective, but also on an internal standpoint, you being able to rotate and see different aspects of Mayo Clinic's practices has allowed you to touch and influence the patient care continuum, which had if you were to stay in one practice, you may not have had the appreciation for that you have now and that it's very complex and it's a long winding road versus a straight destination from point A to point B. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, when I grow up, I always say I, I still don't know what I want to be yet. Right. I, I'm still working on that because when I was in school, I never thought about access management, as I mentioned before. And so I still look out in my career and say, there are so many wonderful things happening that impact the patient. So we talked about virtual care. How can I impact and reduce barriers in terms of access for virtual care? Now that I have my access knowledge, how can I be a positive influence in that space, a positive leader? So to your point, systems thinking, in my opinion, is a great element to be able to foster and develop as you lead various segments of the healthcare environment. Similar to Jefferson's sentiments, I've truly always admired Mayo Clinic's rotational model. And even hearing from your perspective, how much you've gained from it, again, I, I think that truly is amazing. I want to follow up with that and say, as someone who has been with the organization since a fellow, have you been able to find mentors that supported your career within the organization? Also, have you found it more difficult to solicit support or mentorship as you vertically progress in your career matriculation? It has definitely not been difficult to find mentors at Mayo Clinic. It actually has been more difficult to figure out how to tell people, unfortunately, <laughs> you know, I don't need an additional mentor right now <laughs> because there have been so many open doors. Um, as a fellow, as you mentioned, you meet a lot of individuals and in those meetings, you share with them your desires, your interest. And I have only found open doors where people say, oh, sure, if you want to meet with me again, you know, we'll, we can connect. Early on, because there were so many people, wonderful individuals who opened their door to me, one of my mentors advised, be very intentional with your relationships. Um, be intentional because time is something you'll never get back, right? And you want to make sure that these relationships are progressive for you, but also the mentors in which you're asking for their time as well. So what I developed was essentially a roundtable. And this roundtable has representatives from a lot of different aspects of my life, but they all serve a intentional purpose and they have very different perspectives. And very rarely do they think like me. 
because my goal in my mentorship roundtable is that they challenge me. They challenge me not to just be the same Brittany that I came in the door as, but to be a better version of myself. And so my mentorship roundtable, you know, individuals change at that table. um, But nonetheless, the goal is that they refine me as an individual in the leadership qualities that I desire to bring forward. And I'm very intentional about those engagements. So likely when I'm identifying a mentor, I'm determined, I've determined what I desire to get from them, or what I desire to have out of that engagement, and go forward on that regard and try to be very um, thoughtful about what that looks like. Now, as you asked about, as I've matured in my career, has it become more difficult? My answer to that is no. However, where I've looked for mentors has become very different. So when I first came into Mayo Clinic, a lot of the people around my mentorship roundtable were internal to Mayo Clinic. But as I go up, I actually seek out more mentors externally. Why is that? There are three um, operations administrators for the divisions of hematology and medical oncology throughout Mayo Clinic in Arizona. This book of knowledge is not something I can seek internally at the depth that I desire to have it. So I have sought a mentor outside of Mayo Clinic who leads one of the world's largest healthcare centers. Um, I won't mention it because I don't want to give them any publicity, but nonetheless, you know, I have a mentor at another cancer center um, that subsequently serves to help me develop my knowledge in this space. You know, I have mentors who are at other institutions that teach me about pediatric care because that is a book of knowledge that I will never get at Mayo Clinic in Arizona at the depth that I desire it. But as a thriving healthcare professional, I know that that is probably a level of knowledge that I need to if I want to continue to go up in my career. I can go on for a couple of other aspects that I've sought mentors externally, but to your to your question, it hasn't become more difficult as much as the, the places where I've sought mentors has become different. I guess the last thing that I'll, I just want to share with individuals who are listening is in my intentionality of finding mentors, in my opinion, it's important that I can be honest and open with my mentors and that our conversation is what I call easy, if you would. So I never ask someone to be my mentor straight off the bat. Likely, there is some level of engagement that we've had before I decide that I want to ask them to be my mentor. And so what does that look like? Sometimes I meet people at various events and, you know, then I might invite them to coffee or tea so I can really get an understanding of how and if we connect. Sometimes, you know, we've trans we've had some level of transaction in some sort of business structure where I really get to know who they are. I don't just seek after people because of their title um, or because of, you know, oh, I want to be you. I, I, I don't know that for me, that really constitutes a person having a seat at my mentorship roundtable. So just wanted to share that. Wow, I think that again, that's a great point for all of our listeners. And I really like the idea of the roundtable and having different people who think differently or maybe potentially maybe in different fields or in different aspects of, of healthcare. Again, I think that's a very conducive to your comprehensive development as an administrator as well as a leader. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting over my time as I've become 
more of a mentor to more diverse individuals. And by that, I mean, it used to be, you know, when I was early in my career, it was a lot of high school students, you know, now it's becoming a lot of graduate students and some of my peers within my, my colleagues within my environment. One of the things that I've also appreciated is the value that the mentee has for the mentor. So I'll just take Jefferson, for example. I would not overstretch and say that Jefferson was my mentee. However, what I would say is, as I'm listening to things that Jefferson has said over time, the questions that he has asked, it stimulates, right? It starts to stimulate my thinking. And subsequently, I believe that I'm able to refine my style, even though one would perceive that I'm the mentor and he's the mentee. So I guess the, in short, what I'm trying to say is it's actually a relationship built off of reciprocity. Um, and, I, and that has been very enriching for me. And so I try to do the same for my mentors um, who I have to say, you know what, not only what can you do for me, but what can I do for you? How can I help you progress the things you're passionate about? Um, and really look at it as a relationship built off of reciprocity versus a one-way recipient of all of their knowledge and information. Appreciate the kind words, Brittany. Um, not that we're keeping score or anything, but I think you and interacting with you has benefited my thinking a lot more than anything I could do for you. But as you know, the summer is almost here and many of our listeners will be entering administrative fellowships. You're a former administrative fellow and you're also the site director of the fellowship program in Arizona. And so if you had to list maybe three things that incoming administrative fellows could do to maximize their experience as an administrative fellow, what would you say are three things that they could do to actually optimize their experience and be as productive as possible? Sure. This is a, a really good question. And I think, um, I think maybe I'll start before the fellowship actually starts. I'll start at the place where you're seeking a fellowship. I always tell individuals, find an institution that aligns with who you are and what you value. Mayo Clinic has a beautiful name, right? Every, a lot of people know the Mayo Clinic brand. However, dig deep, ref, determine what matters to you and ask us the questions based on what matters to you, right? Look at the institution based on who you desire to be. And if we don't offer that, take us off your list. So that's my first advice to anyone. Don't just go after the big names. Go after the institutions that align with who you want to be and what you value as an individual. I always believe when you're able to bring your passion to an opportunity, it absolutely creates a limitless possibility. So I would say that's the first level I would advise. And then as you're coming in, if you choose to do a fellowship, which I think that's a choice as well that you have to intentionally make, I always say, you know, we're not going to pay you a whole lot to do a lot of work. So <laughs> think twice about it before you decide, right? But if you decide that a fellowship is the route you choose to go, I would say that the next big thing is to do your best work every day. And what does that look like? People always think that means coming in the door, knowing everything. Absolutely not. But that means stepping up to the plate and being willing to try to hit a home run every time. 
At Mayo Clinic, we have a rotational fellowship model where you're going to be in a new space every three months or potentially up to six months. Go into that space, ask questions, dig in deep into that body of knowledge. Try, if once you're given assignments, try to do your best work on each assignment. It all speaks to your capability. It all speaks to your level of intellect that you bring to the table. And people see your effort. They don't say, oh, you know what, you should have come in knowing everything. They see the questions you ask. They see your effort to produce good work. So do that at every at every opportunity. Never let an opportunity pass. And then the last thing that I will share with the listeners is network, network, network. Um, When you have an organization like Mayo Clinic, and the last time I heard, I think we were upwards of 60, 70,000 individuals. When you walk out of your fellowship, you should know most of those individuals. I'm a bit over speaking there, but I'm, I'm being very honest in my expectations of our fellows. Most doors are open to you as a fellow. As a matter of fact, I don't know one that would be closed at Mayo Clinic. Be it that that's the case, get to know people. Get to know people beyond, hey, can you tell me about your career? I love to hear, like, don't don't ask anybody that, right? Get to know people in terms of the things that they cover. If they're the leader of strategy, can you help me understand how you develop the strategy on behalf of the institution like Mayo Clinic? That's the question at play, right? You're trying to learn their thinking processes. And as you're networking and connecting with them, you're really able to take those the things you digest, figure out what works for you or what doesn't, or what could just advise your path forward as you mature as a leader within whichever institution you choose to, you know, have your career at. So I would say the last element for me is to really network, but network with some depth. Don't just ask people to tell you about their career. Don't just ask them what's their favorite book. Have read a book, right? And want to talk about a topic of a book, right? So go deeper on that level of networking that you're going to have as a fellow, because at least at Mayo Clinic, once you graduate, you really have to put in the extra effort to make those connections and make time to reach out to people versus a fellowship where those things are really baked into the experience. That was a really valuable answer, Brittany. It's a, lot, a lot of things you mentioned are things I'm planning on using, but I liked how you really went in chronological order. Before you can even maximize your time as a fellow, you have to make sure, number one, a fellowship is right for you, and then number two, you're at an organization that aligns with your values. And then from there, I liked how you mentioned basically a second level of networking to where you don't actually just meet a person, you get to know them. And as an early careerist from a professional standpoint, what's very important, understand how they think, because even though you might not be able to replicate the same ideas, you can still apply their structure and their thought process to problems you might see in the workplace in the future. Absolutely. And you know, the funny, the funny thing is, is when I'm interviewing individuals for our fellowship, they always think that I'm looking for some grand experience. But truthfully, mostly, I'm assessing individuals on the level of value alignment. What does that mean? Mayo Clinic has, you know, rich ties. That's the acronym we use, respect, integrity, compassion, healing, you know, teamwork, things like that. Those are the things that I'm trying to extract from your conversation with me when you're interviewing. And so all of those other things, those grand things that people think they bring to the table, always tell them there's somebody who's done it bigger and better. That's just true. But there are people who've done it bigger and better and they're super arrogant. 
So what does that look like in the context of teamwork? What does that look like in the context of integrity? Probably doesn't look so great. Those are the things I'm listening for, right? Those little context clues that are gonna tell me if you align with our values. Of course, you're intellectually capable. We wouldn't have you in the seat if you did. You weren't, right? But what are your values and how do you align at that level? So to your point, Jefferson, I go back to the beginning for everyone, right? You've looked at us and said, we align with you, but how do you align with us? Wow, well, again, literally here right on the mark for a lot of things. I think especially for a lot of our listeners who may be interviewing or uh, about to interview or have been through interviews, I think, again, showing that perspective from an institutional standpoint, I think is really great. Uh, to kind of close out, though, I just wanted to ask a question regarding, you know, healthcare is a business of taking care of people. So how have you been able to take care of yourself and prioritize the well-being of your team? <laughs> is there a one question, question I could fail, right? This is yeah. it, right? <laughs> oh, my. Uh, so just to be transparent with the listeners, pre-COVID, I would have said I excel at taking care of myself. I had a great workout regimen. I went to my boot camp classes. I was on it. I was Brittany 5.0. I was doing it. <laughs> COVID, they sat me in a chair behind a desk all day. Remember, none of us could go out of our little squares. Nobody wanted to touch or talk to anyone. And all the gyms closed. Everything just shut down. And literally, that's what I did as well. Unconsciously almost, right? And so as we learned that COVID was going to be here for years, I recognized I actually did have to be intentional about taking care of myself again. It couldn't be a passive activity. So in today's world, one of my big things is I'm back at the gym, which I'm super excited about. Um, now I have to go at 4 a.m., which I'm not super excited about, but whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes, because for me, physical health really impacts my mental health. So that's one big thing for me. The other thing is I'm able to connect with people. And before I definitely would have told you I was an introvert, meaning the way I restore my energy is in isolation by myself. Um, I like people, don't get me wrong. That's not what my introversion is. It's really about my restoration of energy. But now I've found a healthy balance of connecting with people, even if it's virtually, to kind of have that people connection. I've been able to connect with my family over this time, which has been really nice because being isolated from my Florida family since I'm here in Arizona was really tough. So we found different ways to connect. And that has really been a level of restoration that I needed in a way to take care of myself. And then the last thing that I'll mention, because I'm so excited about it is over during COVID, actually, I got married. So oh, it's wow. been really fun. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. It's been exceptionally fun and something that, um, you know, we hike, we, you know, this kind of your built in fun partner, right? Um, somebody to do something with. So we order in and we make it a movie night. So things like that have been ways that I've taken care of myself over this time period. Wow, no, I truly appreciate you giving me this kind of an insider to your personal life. And I think uh, one huge point of that is that I think, you know, when you think about well-being and your mental health and things of that nature, it's a journey. It's a process. So I think the pandemic may have set a lot of people back. But again, it's a process of constantly getting back or constantly really kind of being in, in, in that work to do so. 
Um, but just overall, I just want to thank you, Brittany, for joining us today on the podcast today. I think you really touched on a lot of integral points that there's going to be really great for the listeners to kind of go back and listen to the episode. Um, and as always, thank you guys for tuning in and don't forget to subscribe to the Healthcare Conscious Podcast.